0: Welcome to the latest episode of Schneps Connects. We are going to be talking about cannabis today. And as everyone can imagine, this is a multi-billion dollar industry coming to New York State. And along with that kind of money, there's certainly going to be legal battles. And there's continuing legal battles, particularly in the way that the cannabis licenses are being issued. Initially, they're being granted to those that have had marijuana convictions in the state along with some other criteria, and or to nonprofits with social justice missions. Today's guest is Lauren Ruddick, the founder and managing principal of Ruddick Law Group, which is a new boutique, women-led law firm with offices here in New York City and Jersey City. And she's here to share her career story, as well as discussing issues related to the New York cannabis industry and this rollout. Ruddick Law Group, PLLC, is a New York-based law firm heavily focused on cannabis transactions and regulatory matters, representing investors, operators, and ancillary businesses. Currently, they work with several card license holders, prospective licensing applicants, and AUCC and AUCPs in New York. Lauren began practicing cannabis law in 2014 when New York legalized medical cannabis, However, she has been a patient advocate for her entire adult life. A recovering litigator, Lauren practiced commercial litigation for 10 years, where she successfully represented clients in a wide variety of business, intellectual property, internet media, and land use and zoning cases. So Lauren, it's great to have you. Thank you for joining me.
1: Thank you for having me,
0: Josh. So I think a lot of people have noticed, You know, living in New York City, it's not too hard to tell just by looking around at retail location, It's been a slow rollout for the cannabis operators, and it seems that this is not picking up anytime soon. And I'd love you to share, you know, why this process has been slow and maybe some other factors that are playing into it that the the public is not aware of.
1: Sure. So. Currently, um, we have our entire cannabis retail program under an injunction. It's currently subject to a restraining order of sorts uh, that is prohibiting our Office of Cannabis Management from issuing any further approvals for retail licenses or issuing additional approvals within those licenses already granted. So people essentially could be fully built out and are just missing that final approval to operate, and they're not going to be able to get it, given the current state of the injunction. So we have, unfortunately, four veteran plaintiffs who otherwise would have qualified for the social and economic equity prioritization under our Marijuana Regulation and Taxation Act, our statute, it's called the MRTA, Um, they are arguing that our CARD program, which stands for Conditional Adult Use Retail Dispensary Program, actually violates the MRTA because the MRTA would have required initial retail applications to open to everyone at the same time. Um, Instead, what OCM did was it created this card program and prioritized justice-involved individuals to receive the very first retail licenses here in New York or nonprofit organizations that serve the justice-involved population. Um, so if you were a justice-involved individual, meaning that you were convicted of a New York State marijuana-related offense prior to legalization, um, and there was also some criteria that you be 10% owner of a business that was profitable for at least two years, so a little bit of business sophistication, um, then you would be qualified for this prioritized card license, and you would have first bite at the apple. These veteran plaintiffs have argued that this card program, essentially, in creating the card program, the, OB- the OCM, or Office of Cannabis Management, overstepped its rulemaking authority, um, and instead licensing should be open to everyone at the same time. And in so doing, they want to see the card program go away.
0: Yeah, I definitely feel that this was controversial. You know, obviously, it's it's an opportunity for people that may have been discriminated against in the past, which is terrific. But I guess other groups are looking at in this case, you know, veterans that have, you know, been in our armed forces saying, well, why are they getting the opportunity when I'm not? Is, Is that more or less
1: More or less, that's what they're saying. There's been many different types of attacks, you know, on New York's, you know, cannabis programming, you know, and this one is the most sympathetic that we've heard, um, you know, because these veteran plaintiffs otherwise would have qualified for some type of prioritized licensing in the broader program, but we don't quite know what that would look like yet. But what makes this case unique and unfortunate is that Not only are they saying that they're entitled to prioritize licensing and that licensing should be open to everybody immediately, but they're trying to take something away, you know, that has already been given. And that's what makes this case particularly difficult to stomach. The balance of the equities in this particular instance is very challenging. New York has a very unique responsibility here when it comes to ameliorating the effects of failed drug policy. New York has perhaps the most draconian of drug laws, of prior drug laws when it comes to marijuana policy, the birthplace of the Rockefeller laws. You know, so in every other state, it has been the medical operators that have first bite at the retail, cannabis retail apple. And here in New York, they wanted to do something a little different. They wanted to say that, you know, we have this unique responsibility to those who have been convicted under New York's harsh drug laws. And we want to give them this really unique prioritized license opportunity and you know what social equity this is a unique program it's going to take some time there's going to be some problems there's going to be some kinks to work out so it would be nice to see it you know through and to you know see you know this really carry through the intent of the mrta you know the whole reason why we have cannabis legalization is to you know to fix the harms of failed drug policy particularly the disproportionate impact of failed drug policy on people of color You know the card program is not race-based but a very unique program designed to strike at the intent of the mrta so it's unfortunate that people want to dismantle it and in so doing take licenses that have already been granted away from those who have earned them
0: so i have to hope i would say hope not think because you never know with, with government that they want to get this case resolved quickly to continuing issuing licenses and not hold up an industry can you say how long this process would take to get through the courts? Or is this something that could be in the courts for you know, quite some time?
1: I, I think the case is going to get mooted by general licensing. If OCM can stick to its earlier timeline and open up general licensing around October 4th, you know, then I think that the plaintiff's suit would be mooted. Uh, Mm. The big question is, you know, how valuable is this, you know, first-to-market opportunity and, you know, how much reliance did the cards, you know, put in that? How much did they rely to their detriment? What are their damages, you know, associated with being promised that first market opportunity they raised money they entered into leases they paid for all kinds of consultants advisors and professionals architects engineers a lot of which is very very time sensitive you know so i think that the court in balancing the equities is eager to see general licensing open up because there could be a violation here of statutory authority while at the same time trying to balance the equities you know for the cards who have put so much into relying upon this promise of prioritized licensure the court is telling the parties please try to settle this thing Um, And I'm hopeful that everything will be mooted. And I'm also hopeful that OCM will seek exemptions or exceptions to this injunction for those who have really put in the most and have suffered the most damages and reliance.
0: But what you're saying is that It really opens up this October. So literally like, you know, at time, we're recording this within 60 days, potentially.
1: That's the plan. You know, so what does that one and a half month, you know, two month market opportunity really look like? I mean, we're not necessarily just competing against the cards here. The veteran plaintiffs are competing against thousands of illicit operators. You Mm. know, so it's not as if these cards, when you really take a look at the statistics, you know, less than eight to 10% of them have been able to operationalize. If we've got 450 some odd licenses, it's hard to imagine that these four veteran plaintiffs can't compete for real estate and other aspects of the industry against 40-some-odd other stores, you know, whatever that might look like. So it's a very difficult balance. Um, But yet, two and a half months is very meaningful in the early days of a new market. And I don't want to necessarily shun anyone's ability to be able to capitalize on that the way they had originally hoped or planned. But, you know, it it is very interesting to see how the court is going to grant exceptions to the injunction and how they're going to look at that, And you know, with this licensing opportunity coming up so quickly for the general public. Now, what also could happen Happen is if OCM isn't successful in getting significant exceptions to the injunction, then they might just recodify the CARD program in regulation. And what that would do is set back the regulations by subjecting it to another round of public comment, which would be 45 days. So the veteran plaintiffs could be shooting themselves in the foot if ultimately OCM goes back to the drawing board and then codifies the card program in some sort of prioritized licensing after the application window opens up. So a little bit of pressure on both sides to come to a settlement to avoid further delays in licensing and so that someone can enjoy what is purported to be an early market share opportunity.
0: Meanwhile, there's ten of them opening up on every block and every deli in New York City. The well, those those aren't regulated, and I wouldn't encourage
1: consumers to shop there. You know, we don't know where that cannabis is from or whether it's been tested. Um, you know, there are certainly legal places to shop from, and delivery um, is is available. So, um, you know, even if there isn't one around the corner from you, I would encourage consumers to look for one that delivers.
0: So, how many licenses have actually been issued versus how many were supposed to be issued with this injunction?
1: So ultimately, the OCM has increased the number of cards um, throughout the program. Originally, there was going to be 300, then there were 150, then they expanded it to 200 and change, and they expanded it again, you know, to 400 and change. And then in the most recent, you know, court order, they had mentioned that they were going to do 500 to 550. But what I can tell you is I think, I, think, I want to say 450, I don't have that exact number, have been granted so far. Um, a lot of those, roughly half of those, most recently in, um, you know, the meeting that happened last month. So that's how many we have. But right up until last month, maybe only 250 or so, and of those, just above 20 were able to actually operationalize. And of those, maybe 17 had storefronts and the rest had delivery only, you know, so a very, very slow rollout. Some of the slow rollout could also be attributed to the lack of support that we have seen so far, but that was increasing from DASNI and the Social Equity Fund. As part of this card program, one of the reasons why they had this qualifying business criteria is because the state in the private public fund was going to provide some funding support to these card applicants. They were going to lend them money for their facility acquisition and for the build-out and everything down to the fabrications and the fixtures and even some other operating costs. Uh, There was sort of a sub-fund for OPEX and inventory and that sort of thing. So the state had earmarked $200 million for this program. There has been some talk which would be devastating of using that funding for damages in the event that the wow. cards turn, which would just be it's very difficult to think about. Again, I'm hoping that we don't go there and that the money continues to be used for the facility acquisition build out and funding of these card licenses who you know traditionally don't
0: have a lot of access to capital. Well, you know, I was going to ask you why you transitioned into cannabis law. Now I know why. (laughs) It's a lot of work. (laughs) Something that seems like it should have been so simple never is. I'm sure when they see such huge financial opportunity, there's always parties that, you know, get involved. But I assume you saw the opportunity in terms of the industry. What was the turning point for you in terms of changing your focus as a lawyer?
1: You know, so I've already always been more access focused. I originally came to the industry through my mother's end of life care. She was a patient in California back in 2009. This was pre Cole Memorandum, pre regulatory schemes, you know, in an environment where it's collective caregiver model. Um, and in that process, I got to know our collective owner very well. He was also a patient himself. His mother had died of a gastric cancer. He was very sensitive and particular when it came to um, stable medication and just really knowing clean medication and knowing your grower, essentially. So, really taught me a lot about repeat effects and understanding terpenes and you know, minor cannabinoids and, and different aspects of cannabis than I ever learned before. In getting to know him, I also learned that there were a ton of legal issues, you know, plaguing his dispensary. Most of which were land use and zoning. And at the time, I was a land use and z- running litigator. So it was a lot of NIMBY issues. You know, the, the neighbors were against you, the cops were against you, the gangs were against you. It just wasn't a good time to be involved in cannabis. But I learned very quickly they need lawyers. But yet New York resident just living in California temporarily. So there wasn't a lot of work for me. So I just sat on it from a patient advocacy perspective and watched these laws start to develop. Right around 2014, I was working with some clients on some other risky investments in other industries. If you know me, you know that I have a healthy relationship with the plants. They turned to me and said, we want to put money into cannabis. Can you help us do it? at the time nobody else was doing it in new york no lawyers would touch it none of the big firms traditionally associated with MAs and financing would go near it so we just embraced it you know invented systems of due diligence analyzed areas of legal exposure figured out how that factored into valuations started structuring deals working with residency requirements you know and i learned very quickly when you represent money and investors, everybody wants to talk to you. So it was sort of like drinking water from a fire hose in terms of access to deals and learning creative structures and being able to put these deals together. I went to a conference. I forged a relationship with Marijuana Venture Magazine, which is a publication I began writing for on a regular basis. So that certainly helped increase my visibility, my credibility. I really challenged myself to write about new issues every month, more legal journalism, and then some practical tidbits on how I could support my clients that were facing a variety of different issues. I really learned that cannabis is a holistic exercise in so many different areas of law intersect in cannabis You know, you've got intellectual property, you know, plant genetics and trademarks and unique trademark issues associated with your inability to use cannabis goods and commerce. You've got copyright and artwork issues. You've got all kinds of, you know, governance issues and regulatory problems and divestment and, you know, redemption issues and buy-sell agreements and all kinds of, you know, limitations and restrictions on ownership and financial source agreements and management services agreements. And there's so many different types of relationships that are regulated within the cannabis space that bring together a variety of different legal disciplines disciplines. disciplines. You know, my initial clients were investors. I started representing the other side of the money, um, you know, helping people compete in some of the merit-based contests for limited licenses, you know, mostly here on the East Coast. Had some success in winning, you know, some of the top scores in virtually every contest in which we participated. Just, you know, built the practice very organically. A couple of years ago, I convinced my then law partner to take on a very massive federal action against former Attorney General Jeff Sessions, the DEA, the DOJ, in an effort to deschedule cannabis on constitutional grounds, which was a case that made up to the Supreme Court before getting dismissed on a procedural technicality, although we weren't um, granted um, cert in the Supreme Court, but we were dismissed on procedural technicality for failure to exhaust our administrative remedies, which was a little bit ridiculous at the time because Jeff Sessions, who was in power, expressed extreme antipathy for cannabis and the people who used it. And it would have been he who made the administrative decision on whether or not to reschedule cannabis. So that was a, a very interesting fight that we lost, but nonetheless raised the visibility of medical cannabis. We had federal judge agreeing with us that cannabis is medicine, which is the first time anything like that ever happened. And the practice really just continued to grow you know, very organically. And we have a very unique model in the way we approach these businesses and the type of advice we work very closely with consultants, just really trying to do something a little bit different when it comes to legal representation in the cannabis industry.
0: Now that's terrific. Mm-hmm. Well, back to New York, you know, it's been a very slow beginning, but what do you see in terms of the future? What, what, do you think there is going to be growth once these licenses all get out and I guess Once everyone has access to apply for licenses, particularly larger companies, I assume, you know, my feeling is they're going to individuals now, but there's got to be bigger players that are going to be, you know, swimming in these waters eventually.
1: You know, I'm, I'm hopeful that New York is going to create a regulatory environment that's very friendly and hospitable to smaller and diversely held businesses. You know, we're going to look to, you know, we have a lot of limitations and restrictions on ownership to prevent that type of, you know, oligopolistic or big companies, big corporate cannabis coming in and taking over and, you know, behaving in these predatory ways. So I'm hopeful that our regulatory scheme will actually promote small businesses and robust competition. And I think that's what's gonna create the most healthy environment. Um, You know, New York is already the largest cannabis market, you know, whether or not it's regulated, but we already have the heaviest demand here. You know, and also New York, our top economy is agriculture. Our second top economy is tourism. So cannabis fits so nicely into both of those economies. You know, so I really anticipate that our market is going to be huge. It's already billions of dollars. And I anticipate that New Yorkers are really going to take it to, you know, ex- expansive levels. Yeah.
0: You know, you talked about your case going up to the Supreme Court. Do you think the New York market, as it opens up and as it grows, is going to have impact nationally in terms of Any other state laws or federal laws or, you know, other impacts that will make cannabis more of a, a national industry?
1: I, absolutely, I think that New York actually has a unique two-tiered structure, very similar to alcohol, where if you participate in the supply tier, then you cannot participate in the retail tier. So, if you own an interest in cultivation or manufacturing or distribution, then you cannot also have an interest in retail or on-site consumption or delivery. That looks very, very similar to the way alcohol is regulated in this country. You know, so we do anticipate. You know, our cannabis authority was born out of our liquor authority. And we've seen that in multiple states. New York is trying to create a pathway for federal legalization and is in those conversations to see you know, what federal legalization could look like. And from what we're hearing, it could very much involve a two-tiered structure. So it could be that New York businesses are going to survive and compete very well when we ultimately do see federal legalization.
0: Interesting. I wonder, do you know what the difference is in the potential size of the cannabis market as a comparison to liquor?
1: I don't. I know that in some states, we're certainly seeing the cannabis market eclipse liquor. And we're certainly uh-huh. seeing liquor companies, you know, try to market very, very hard to cannabis consumers. Um, you know, there's definitely a, a, a marketing ploy there for them. But you know, cannabis beverages are becoming increasingly available and delicious. And I think, you know, the notion of California sober is certainly growing. But I, I do believe in states like Oregon and Washington, you know, some of the statistics comparing cannabis, you know, to beer and that sort of thing, it's it's getting pretty close if we haven't eclipsed already.
0: Interesting. Well, Lauren, you definitely got in at the ground up and thank you so much for sharing you know, your story and we look forward to you know, continuing to hear about the industry.
1: Of course. Thank you so much for having me. I'm happy to talk about all
0: things cannabis. My pleasure. Thanks for joining the Schneps Connect podcast. To listen to our podcast, visit anytimepodcast.schnepsmedia.com or stream us online through all major podcast networks.